0: tried to picture who i'd be talking to today when i wrote this but uh let me ask this question how many here have heard of hms richards okay actually uh if you if you turn around you'll notice that there's about a quarter of us who haven't and um i don't think that that is uh uh, a coincidence that the quarter that hasn't are people that have joined us in the last couple of years and whose hair is not quite as um Lacking of a particular darker color, uh, you know. How about Morris Vendant? Okay, about the same. As a matter of fact, a little less. Just a little less, right? HMS Richards, the founder of the radio program, The Voice of Prophecy, which turned out to be, for a while at least, the longest running, continuous religious radio program in the history of United States broadcasting. Um, Started the ministry in the late 30s, got real popular in the 40s and the 50s, and continued on and continues to this day. Uh, Morris Venden was an author, a pastor, um, a scholar, um, ended up uh, pastoring quite a few campuses, college campuses. And when he was pastoring the Pacific Union College Church, he had his hero once his hero HMS Richards come to speak and usually when you get somebody like elder richards to come to a campus it isn't just preaching on sabbath it's a it's an entire program probably had been there for a week of prayer but uh, and the afternoon subjects were already set. He preached on Sabbath morning and then everyone was invited back after lunch around two or three o'clock. And the subject was set. And what was set was what is the essence, if you will, or what is the main teaching of Adventism? And Elder Venden was very, very anxious to hear from this because he knew this HMS Richards very well and he didn't know anybody who was more dedicated to the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist church at the time than HMS Richards. So if he had an opinion as to what the main point or what the essence of Seventh-day Adventism was, he wanted to hear it. And so the anticipation was up. The, the uh, local radio broadcast was on and he stood up in front of the auditorium and he said, the essence of Adventism, the essence of Seventh-day Adventism is Jesus only. And that was it. That's what he said. Jesus only. From a pastor that started back in the early teens and then pastored all the way up until uh, he couldn't anymore for decades, dedicated to the Seventh-day Adventist church ministry, he said that the one teaching of Adventism was Jesus only. There's an old saying in organizations and especially in church growth and that is when a church begins and you begin to grow and you begin to uh, live out your mission, especially when it's brand new until then, have you, a question you should always ask yourself is have you kept the main thing, the main thing? If what your church is about what it was founded to be and its essence, if you will, and the main point, have you kept the main thing, the main thing? So I ask those of us who know these dates, from 1844 to 1888 to 1974 to 2022, have we kept the main point, the main point? See, because for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the main point was never, ever supposed to be in doubt because it was given to us 2,000 years ago when Jesus gathered the first first men that that actually would go out and begin this church and begin its mission. The main point was the main point. There was no other point. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. How much? All authority had been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them how much of what I've taught you. All of what I've taught you. Observe everything that I've taught you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples of who? Of Him. The main point. Baptized in the name of who? All three of Him. The main point. All authority, all that I've taught, who? The main point. And what is main about the main point? And lo, I am with you, His presence, God's presence, God with us. The main point. So it doesn't surprise me after, after seven chapters that the book of Hebrews finally comes to the main point. And how do I know it? It's because he says it himself. The author says it himself. Now the main point in what has been said, we've been talking and teaching for seven chapters. He's finally going to get to the main point. And actually, when you think about it, he actually started with the main point. We just forgot because that was weeks ago. Now the main point is this that we have such a what such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens a high priest we studied last week not like the ones appointed by the law not from the order of levi the order of aaron the order of zadok the house of caiaphas but the order of who melchizedek King of righteousness, king of peace. Melchizedek and Melech Shalom, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. That's the order. One that has no human origin, one that wasn't dictated to by the law. And he's seated where right now? According to Hebrews, in the majesty of the heavens. It's interesting, that Greek word that we translate as majesty is only used two times in the entire New Testament. Here, and back in chapter 1, verse 3, when he said, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he'd made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the what? What? of the majesty on high. Majesty is only used twice, both in the book of Hebrews, both talking about this high priest. And where is he? Seated at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of the throne. By the way, the right hand, the hand of what? The hand of all power, seated at the right. James and John's mom asked that they they could be seated at his right hand. It was the right hand that was the power. I'm sorry, left-handed people. You've always been in the minority. I'd rather have a left-handed pitcher, But when it comes to the right hand of God, that is his authority. That's where Jesus is right now. And notice what Hebrews says, put him there. Why is he worthy to be able to sit at the right hand of the authority of God? Why is he the exact radiance? It was only after he made purification for what? After he made purification for sin. Atoned for all of his wayward children, including you and me. And when he did that, then he was able to seat at the right hand of God. In Revelation 4, Revelation 4 gives a different uh, picture, if you will, of this coronation of this, of this high priest who gets to sit at this place. In Revelation 4, two, it says, John says, I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. When he says with one seated, he can't identify him. He doesn't know uh, quite who he is, which we said in the throne in heaven, that is God. That's the father who is seated on the throne. And all around the throne, there's a complete representation of all heaven and earth. In symbolic language, we're told that all of humanity is represented by 24 elders on the thrones, four living creatures, all wisdom and all seeing because they're full of eyes and they represent four aspects of creation. But the one seated on the throne, the God that is seated on the throne that is in charge of all of this, that was the creator of all of this, he holds up a scroll He's holding a scroll and it's sealed by seven seals, and a cry goes out that says, Is there anybody worthy who can open this scroll? And John is told that there's no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And the Revelator even begins to weep because no one is worthy. And then all of a sudden, a voice comes out. It says, Don't weep, don't worry. The son of David, the lion of Judah, he's a conqueror. He can do it, he can open it up. John's saying, Yes. David, of course, Israel's ultimate conqueror, excuse me, Judah's ultimate conqueror. So when John turns, he expects to see him. He expects to see David. But when he turns, according to verse five, chap, uh, chapter five, verse six, he says, "I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elder standing as if it were slaughtered or slain a lamb." He doesn't see David, does he? He doesn't see David with a sword who is just conquered or ready to conquer. He sees a lamb, a lamb that it appears that it's been what, that it's been slain. But the lamb has seven horns, seven eyes, and all of the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth By the way, all sevens, which means it's perfect power. It's God's power. Seven horns, horns are power. Perfect power, all God's power. Perfect sight, all wisdom, all can see. It's God's wisdom seated in this lamb. And then, of course, seven spirits. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, all of it, all contained in this lamb who was slain. And we realize that he is completely worthy and God has given him his all and to borrow from the Hebrews to understand that he is the radiance of his glory the exact representation of his nature when that is realized all of a sudden the elders and the creatures begin to sing a new song a new song, the old song they sang to the Father who was seated on the throne. The new song they now begin to sing to this Lamb. I heard every creature, and, and 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 then in the middle, in the middle, the angels join in for another verse, and then at the end it says all creation joins in. Every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and to all of them, they sing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever revelation gives us a picture of when this high priest took his seat at the right hand of the majesty of god so to say that this high priest is the main point the author of hebrews is saying quite a mouthful isn't he when you saw what happened when the Lamb took the throne, when you saw what happened, this is quite a mouthful to say that this high priest is the main point. And what is main about him? Well, he's a minister. He serves, if you will. He serves in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not who? not man. Notice sanctuary and tabernacle, two different words in Hebrew. It says that he served in the sanctuary and that word sanctuary actually is the word holy and it's in plural form. So it says that he ministers in the holies. Is there a holy in the tabernacle? Yes, there is, isn't there? There's a holy place and then there's a what? The holy of holies, He serves there, that's where he serves. In the true tabernacle, the true tent, which was pitched by who? Pitched by God and not by who? Not by man so in our letter so far in 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 chapters 1 through 7 he has spent the entire time differentiating differentiating between the men who were priests before and now the main point priest right all all of it he didn't stray he would go two lines in talking in the entire letter before he began talking about this high priest he cannot shut up about this high priest and now we know why why Because he's the main point. But he spent most of the time differentiating between the earthly priesthood and the heavenly priesthood of this high priest. The difference between the two. Because the main differences are about to switch. The main differences are about to go from the men to the places or the tabernacles that they serve. The main differences between the main point high priest and the law-appointed high priest is the tabernacle that they serve in because each of them serves in a different one. And there's a difference between the two. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, where Jesus had entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We go from the priesthood now to the difference between the tabernacles. There's an earthly tabernacle, and there is a what? Apparently, a heavenly one. And he points out, he says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since those who offer gifts according, uh, they do it, they do it according to what? According to the law. If he were here on earth, the law wouldn't allow him to be priest. We checked that out last week, didn't we? Why? Why couldn't Jesus be a priest if he were here on earth? What's the law say? Boy, it was just last week. Okay, okay. I I forgot a hymn like within an hour. But I'm just saying, this is supposed to be the main point. (laughs) He's not from the tribe of Levi. He can't serve. Remember, we said that last week. The only way that he could serve as a priest is if he changed the law. And we came to a conclusion. Did Jesus change the law? Uh, Yeah, he did. He made it real. He made it alive. He completely fulfilled it. He completely changed the reason for living it and the way that it was lived. Right, Rodney? That's what I mean. By the way, he did it without changing a dot or a tittle. Didn't change it a bit, but then he changed it completely. He couldn't serve. He absolutely couldn't serve. He's from the wrong tribe. But now, the main point is this, is that what really sets them apart is where they serve, the sanctuary. These ones, these ones that are appointed according to the law, the Levites, the ones that we've talked about that have served in the earthly sanctuary up until now, they serve in a what? What? a copy it says a copy and shadow of the heavenly things just as moses was warned by god when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see he says that you make all things according to the what according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain the true is a shadow of the heavenly you with me the one on earth the one that is being served by what seems to be the law's true priesthood, it is a shadow. I, you know, I I was thinking about this the other day. The only way that I can recognize my shadow is that when I see it, it's still attached to me. I know that that's my shadow. But if we were to take a picture of our shadow and show it on the screen and not say who it was, Would we necessarily know whose shadow that was? We wouldn't at all, would we? This earthly one is a shadow. The one on earth was a copy, and it was copied after a pattern. It gave us tangible things. It gave us uh, things that we that that human beings like. Seeing is believing. Touching is believing. It gave us tangible things, real materials, real altars, touchable rituals, water, sacrifice, light, bread, incense. It, it appealed to all of the senses. Furniture. Not the least, a piece of furniture that was supposed to be the actual earthly throne of God stuck in the back. So note, though, that it was a pattern. Those of us who immediately recognized who HMS Richards was, were you one of the families that was raised to believe or told that when thunder happened It was Jesus moving the furniture in the tabernacle to dust behind it. How many here ever heard that? We miss something. If we don't note that Moses wasn't shown a model, he was shown a pattern. A pattern much different than a model. Some of us get the impression that he was shown the furniture. That he said that this is from the sanctuary in heaven. That he was shown the furniture, and it's not true. He was shown or given a pattern, if you will. And God says, "Build it according to the what? According to the pattern." This word pattern right here is the same in Greek as it is in Hebrew. This is a direct quote. Hey, by the way, millennials, uh, the author of Hebrews is not yelling at us here. All capital letters means he's quoting from the Old Testament, okay? He's not yelling at you. He just wants us to know that he's been reading his Bible and he wants us to read it too, amen? So he says, that's a direct quote right there from Exodus twenty-five forty. The word pattern is only used three times in all of the Hebrew scriptures, only three times. One of them is right here in talking about the tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary. Next, it's only used two times. It's used two more times in the same verse. Israel had a king named Ahaz who went to Damascus and when he got there, the Assyrian king showed him their altar and he was impressed with it. So he notifies the high priest at the time and gives him a pattern. I want the new altar built just like this one. Now, that's problematic on two levels is because the pattern of the altar was supposed to be given by Moses. This guy is getting it from a pagan king. But I want you to note, did King Ahaz have the ability to take a picture of the altar? Or did he build a model of the altar and send it to the high priest and say, build it this way? No, the best he could do would be maybe, maybe to draw it. Pattern would be like looking at a schematic diagram versus an actual picture. For anybody who can read a schematic diagram, that's completely different than looking at the apparatus itself, isn't it? That's what he is saying. The earthly furniture is not taken from a photo, but it was given a pattern. And we'll get to this pattern and the reason why it was given a pattern. But it was on earth to be tangible. It was built on earth to be tangible. It's good. It was a good thing. It had its purpose. It had its time. However, its time was limited. And the author of Hebrews says, its time is up because he goes he's obtained now speaking of the main point high priest he's obtained now a more what a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted by better what better promises better promises the main point is not the furniture But it's the covenant that was enacted by the entire tabernacle process. The physical part was supposed to illustrate this covenant. Not the first one, but the next one. And what does Hebrews say about the covenant? The actual covenant. The heavenly is better not because of the furniture. It's better because of the mediator. Amen? It isn't better furniture It's a better mediator. And the mediator of the better covenant is the main point, high priest. His promises are better. See, some would be surprised that this good the good part, the earthly part, some would be very surprised that this wasn't it, that this wasn't the second covenant, that it wasn't the better one. They would be surprised that there is a more excellent excellent one. How would we know? It's because the author of Hebrews says that the, for the first one, it said if the first one had been faultless, if it had been everything it was supposed to be, there'd have been how many occasions for another one? None. There'd be no reason for a second one. I love the the reasoning in, in Hebrew thought about this. You guys want to know why there had to be a better covenant? If the first one was good, there didn't have to be another one. But God himself says there will be another one. So what he's saying about the first one is not that it's no good. It's just that it's time is up. For finding fault with them, he said, behold, the days are coming. Again, he's not yelling at you. He's quoting Jeremiah now. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a, what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. If the earthly one were the main point, if the furniture could make it the main point, then why does he promise another? What's wrong with this one? He says, well, this is what's wrong with it. Again, not the furniture. Not, not, The pattern or the model on which it was it was made from but the problem with the covenant that i made with their fathers was on the day when i took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and i did not care for them they did not what they didn't continue in what in my covenant guess what the new covenant isn't new (laughs) it's not new. It's just that Israel made it old by not continuing in it. See, the key word here is, or the keys to this is, it's when I called them out of Egypt. So the covenant was made with them when and where? In the wilderness at Sinai. He made the covenant at Sinai, but he said the problem with the covenant was they didn't continue in it. I know you guys get tired of me pointing this out, but in Exodus 19, in preparation for the giving of this covenant at Sinai, he gathers everybody around the mountain, tells Moses to tell them, get ready, in three days, something's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen in three days. And for three days, he tells everybody to stay off the mountain, don't go near it. It's sacred, it's holy. And of course, what he's doing is that he's setting that area apart. For a purpose, something is about to happen. And then it says in, in verse 13 in Exodus 19, it says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast after this three-day preparation, when you hear the trumpet, it says, tell them they may go up the mountain. And who's on the mountain? They are. They were invited up the mountain. In order to give God the covenant that he promised Moses he would give them, he's offering the same covenant that only Moses has had up until now. And that is this face-to-face relationship. Later, his brother and his sister would argue that they're prophets too, that we have authority, that we can tell you what to do, Moses. God shows up and says, well, yes, you are prophets. I speak to you in dreams and visions, but not like my servant Moses. I speak to him face to face. And of course, when he offered them this covenant to come up the mountain, to have this face to face covenant, did they accept it? Now you see what Jeremiah was saying, right? They didn't continue. They didn't continue. In fact, they didn't even start up the mountain. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, and, and what gets me is they witnessed the, si- the thunder and the lightning and they heard the sound of the trumpet. They were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and they said to Moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us for we will die for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them they didn't continue they refused this face-to-face covenant and of course he did not care for them because they're refusing his care how he's saying how could I give them care if they won't come near me How could I give them care if they're asking Moses to talk to me instead of them? So they settle for a mere copy. Because the pattern isn't shown until after this. They settle for a mere copy, a pattern of his covenant. They made what was supposed to be the new covenant, they made it old. So now God says, I'm offering them what again? I'm offering them a new one again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Furniture, priesthood, a law written down on tablets. Well, okay, good, good, but guess what? How about a new one? How about one with, that is written in the hearts and the minds, one that comes not from the shadow, but a face-to-face walking and talking intimacy? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. You don't get that from an intermediary. You don't get that from a priesthood. A priest can't love God for us. And God's also decided that a priest can't love us for him. And I think the human priesthood kind of proved that throughout their centuries, did they not? And listen to what that means, to have that intimacy with Him. What it means, it says, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord. For how many will know me? All will know me, from the least to the greatest. Right now, under the old covenant, it's the greatest that get the relationship. They're the only ones that are educated, the only ones that know how to read. As a matter of fact, those scribes and, and, prof- and professors of the law, they're going back and telling the people who aren't as rich, aren't as cultured, Telling them, God, you know what? God is displeased with you. If he liked you, you'd be as rich as me. But the new covenant is, there isn't anybody acting the relationship out on your behalf. The human priesthood was asked for by the people, not by God. No one will have to teach to say, know the Lord. See, I know what happens with us, too, is that we relax as Protestants. We relax and say, hey, you know, we're cool. We don't have a priesthood. Oh, really? What have we done with the Protestant pastorate or the elders? I've told you before, I had members and still do have members that call me thinking my prayers go higher than everyone else's. That I'm holier because I'm up here. Intercessory prayer is not a substitute for a relationship with God. And I don't know. I don't know why we as a church continue to look for that intercessor. We continue to look for that priest. Protestants say, no, the priesthood is bad. Count it off. But it isn't within a hundred years that all of a sudden Protestant pastors are, are, are acting as priests themselves. All the praying, all the studying, all the witnessing, all the preaching, all the teaching. A teaching ministry, a revelation ministry, is one who teaches. It only is to help with this. Pastor can't do it for us. Elder Venden couldn't do it for us. HMS Richards can't do it for us. We're all just here to proclaim. As long as you'll allow me to teach, this is what I will proclaim. I'll be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Ralph and I can attest, pastors aren't more holy than anyone else. They're just two beggars who found bread who's trying to tell the other beggars where to find it. And we walk around saying things like this. God will be merciful to our iniquities and remember them no more. If I was holding this mic and it wasn't so expensive, I'd drop it. A pastor teaching ministry should be willing to make sure the new covenant is actually the old one because we're told the old one is going to disappear. If there's one thing that we should be teaching and learning is the difference between the two. Because when he wrote it, it certainly was going to disappear. A new covenant, he's made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to what? It's ready to disappear. As I pointed out, if this is written in the late 50s, the early 60s, within 10 years, this temple is going to be gone. And what are they gonna do when that anchor is yanked out from underneath them? the disciples themselves couldn't believe it when jesus began to teach it they talking about 70 a.d he says you know what he says you see all of these buildings because they were trying to impress him with the temple and he says truly i tell you not one stone will be left upon another all will be thrown down the temple was completely destroyed it was burned it was decimated I had a guide in the Holy Land say once that that she really believes that the reason the Mount of Olives doesn't have any olive trees on it anymore is because in 70 AD they needed wood to make a fire to be able to burn a building mostly made of marble and they decimated all of the olive trees on the Mount of Olives and that's what actually burned the temple down. You don't burn down a temple <laughs> made of marble. But they burned it, desecrated it, pried off each stone and rolled it down into the Kidron. Not one stone left on another. And the siege of Jerusalem that happened When they did that, when they burned the temple, Jesus says this, he says, for there will be a time of great suffering such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. The Jewish historian Josephus described that that siege. Remember, with a walled city, all you have to do is, is surround it and cut it off, cut off the supplies, Jerusalem had a limited number of uh, amount of uh, food inside they had water thanks to Hezekiah but they didn't have any food and after a while they began to starve and somebody would hop over the wall just to run out into the desert to pick some you know, some weed or something out in the desert. And when they did, the, the soldiers had, had orders to throw them immediately up on a cross. Josephus says that you couldn't walk in the Kidron Valley without hitting this. It was cross to cross to cross to cross. That when Titus finally shows up to claim victory, General Titus... A general in the Roman army, when he finally shows up, he sees the scene and they said it made him sick. Jesus said if if God hadn't cut those days short, you know how many would have been saved? Nobody. By the way, a good spiritual lesson there. We're under siege, right? We live in exile. We live on a planet that's starving to death and exterminating itself. If Jesus doesn't cut this off, guess how many of us will be saved? None. Nobody will be in the kingdom because they recognize the signs. They will be in the kingdom because God cut off the trial and the tribulation of the world that no one has ever seen before and no one will ever see again. disciples are shocked to hear this completely shocked to hear this because if you destroy the temple then you destroy the one thing that makes us who we are and they actually even like it liken it to the end of the age because they ask him back they said master tell us when this will be when this will happen and what will bring about your coming and the end of the age because to them the destruction of the temple is the end of the world It's these men that the author of Hebrews is speaking to. When this temple does get destroyed and that anchor is yanked out, he wants them to have hope. He wants them to know that just because that temple no longer exists. And by the way, you destroy the temple, you destroy the reason for the priesthood. The law cannot, uh, uh, I guess the law cannot uh, still, um, I don't know, I forgot the word. Still can't provide. The law can't provide for a priesthood with no temple to serve in it. Notice that, that no flavor of Judaism has ever tried to bring back the priesthood. Why? Because the temple has been destroyed since 70 AD, 1930 years ago. The author of Hebrews wanted them to know that all of that is gone. But that was all old, and the main point is this. It wasn't this temple in the first place. It was the pattern that it was made after. That's what it was. See, the word tabernacle is used 20 times and is translated as uh, tent or dwelling in the New Testament. The verb form of tabernacle, the, 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 somebody who is to dwell rather than dwelling or to dwell, it's only used five times. And the very first time that it's used is right here. And the word became flesh and what? And dwelt among us. If you were to translate that literally, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent here in what? In human flesh He tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace, full of what? And full of truth, that's the truth. Then you'll hear it three or four more times, three, three more times in Revelation until finally you come here. And the last time that that, that, that word tabernacled or the dwelling is, is used is right here at the end, all the way at the end. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among who? Is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will what? Will be among them. The more perfect tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the one that the earthly sanctuary is patterned off of, guess what? The main point is Jesus. He is it. I really believe. That when Moses was shown the pattern, the pattern, if you will, it was to be able to try to illustrate a heavenly transaction that takes place in the tabernacle. It illustrates what Jesus did for us. Remember I told you before, the outer court, you're perfectly atoned for. The priests got to be baptized every day in the outer court. They put on the daily offering. They took in sin offerings. So baptism, uh, completely pure in the outer court, you're completely atoned for. Amen? After you've been atoned, you get to go in into the holy place. And inside the holy place, there is, there is light, the light of the world. You, you get every day to be able to uh, uh, walk in the light, if you will. There's bread, there's provision every, every, inside. And then there's an altar of incense. All of your prayers, perfectly interceded for, perfectly atoned for, perfectly interceded for. If you're perfectly atoned for and interceded for, then the message is, what are you waiting for? Pull back the veil. He's sitting right there. He's waiting for us there. He wasn't shown a model with furniture. He was told build this so that it illustrates this. Jesus is the sanctuary, He is the tabernacle. He is the holy of holies. The more more perfect of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, is him. The pattern is Jesus. This was just an earthly illustration of him. The author of Hebrews wants to tell them that when that thing gets destroyed, don't worry about it. And don't worry about whether or not it will ever be rebuilt again. It may be rebuilt again, but it's got nothing to do with the covenant because you and I will already be in the most perfect covenant. And for whatever reason that they rebuild it, we don't need it. It'll be interesting to see. And as a historian, I'd like to see it. But he is a better covenant. He has better promises for us. The furniture was pretty, but it's time has come. The main point is our high priest. So we were told back in that same chapter, there was the true light which came into the world. And when the true light comes into the world, what does it do to mankind? It enlightens mankind, the true light. Not the sun, the moon, or the stars. But what the light that will make eternity, eternity, the main point, if you will, because it says that at the end, he sees no what, no temple, no tabernacle within the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. The city was in no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. No temple, no tabernacle, none of the former former covenant. A full, absolute, face-to-face, exact, radiant presence of the glory of God. And that's why you can say, the main point is this. We have such a high priest. He's taking his seat where? There. There. He doesn't need a sanctuary. He is the sanctuary. A minister in the true sanctuary. We arise from a group of people, a group of believers, a devout group of believers who came towards the end of the, who well, actually came together in the 1830s, 1820s, and then came together towards the end of the Second Great Awakening, thinking that something was gonna happen around 1844. Because they studied the Bible and they knew that the sanctuary needed to be cleansed. And what we say about those people is that they forgot about the heavenly sanctuary. They, they, They said that the sanctuary could only be two things, right? It could only be the earth or it could only be people, right? It could only be one of the two. Well, the only one that you can cleanse by fire was the earthly one. And what we like to say is that the Millerites missed the heavenly one. Actually, no, they didn't miss it. They missed the main point. (laughs) They thought the main point was the coming of the main point. So they missed the main point. They were completely wrapped up in his second coming. They didn't realize that he is that sanctuary that is coming. From 1849 to 1880, the church, uh, uh, the main point of the church became its peculiar teaching. We were teaching to nothing but Christians, so we needed to teach, teach our peculiar doctrines. The five S's, Sabbath, sanctuary, salvation, all, all of that, the five S's. And, and, and so that peculiar teaching became the main point. We were missing the main point. 1888 might have been our one shot to get the main point back, and we didn't even, couldn't even argue, couldn't even get to what the main point was. 1915, what's the main point again? We were arguing then about the scriptures, the ones written on paper, the ones that only tell about the main point. three angels message is that the main point well the third angel says here's a call for the endurance of the saints that those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus what other commandments of God love God love your neighbor as yourself the main point was the only one to ever ever do that and he offers us the opportunity to do so if we would just grab on to his faith the main point. Moses, I I think, (laughs) for all his faithfulness, one day God kept his promise. And one day Moses finally got to see the true. See, he'd been completely saturated with the first one. He'd been completely saturated because he was the one... That took the pattern that, that wrote out the blueprints to be able to give it to Bezaliel to be able to build. And they put it together. But he's only, he's only seen that one. He's only seen that one. And and, and one day, one day, there was a time where God, where God said, you know what, Matt? I'm gonna show you the heavenly one. I'll show you the one that's been, that, that, that old one was patterned after. And of course, it happened on a mountain down outside Jerusalem. Jesus came up a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And Elijah and Moses came down. And I'd like to think that at just one moment. Maybe that by then Moses didn't even need to be introduced. But if he had to be, God would say, Moses, meet the true tabernacle. This is what the pattern was made after. This one right here. The one who tabernacles in human flesh. The word became flesh and walked among them. That's why I think that God had to interrupt Peter because Peter immediately mouths off once he sees them and he starts talking about building temples and sanctuaries. In other words, building the first ones. And God has to actually speak from heaven and say, This is my son. Moses gets it, Elijah gets it. Peter, you're going to have to get this. Listen to him. Because Peter is saying, let's go back to the first. Let's build three. As a matter of fact, let's not only go back to the first, let's build three of them. Let's let's go three times back to the first. God says, no, this is my son. Guys, don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for anyone less. The main point is this. You have him. Listen to him. The word with God was God. The word become flesh. Because he was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world did not know him. Why? Maybe because the church has been arguing about the furniture and the first covenant and who we are. And for 2,000 years, have we got the main point? Have we kept the main point, the main point? the world didn't know him imagine if israel had kept the main point the main point imagine if israel had gone up the mountain imagine if israel continued to seek a face-to-face relationship maybe even after not going up on sinai one of them turns around one day and says you know what moses i want what you got But he came to his own, and those were his own. They didn't receive him either. Not just the world, but him. But the main point, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To anybody who would believe in his name. Not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The main point is this. We have him. The true tabernacle. Thanks for holding on with me. It's something, isn't it? Man. Really something.